Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Wick Realty. Wick helped us buy and sell a home in late 2018, and we have been really glad that that was the house we had for sheltering in place. My guest and I are recording now on a nice back porch, and I'm really happy about that. You know, the real estate market is still pretty strong in Amarillo, and mortgage rates are just about as low as they've ever been. WIC is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying, selling, building, if you're looking for investment property, or if you're a first-time homeowner, this is a great time to talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Today's guest is Michael Timsisco. Michael is the executive director of PASO, the Panhandle AIDS Support Organization. PASO offers case management and emotional support for anyone infected with HIV in the 26 counties of the Texas Panhandle. Under his leadership, PASO transformed from a struggling nonprofit into an influential local organization in a much stronger financial position. So June is Pride Month. It's a moment that recognizes the history and the impact of the LGBTQ community. And Michael has been a leader in that community in Amarillo for more than two decades. And in Austin for longer than that. So we cover a lot of ground in this conversation from how the AIDS pandemic ravaged Michael's community in the 1980s to how things have changed in Amarillo since he and his husband relocated here. And I should say, there's no explicit language or anything in this episode, but in our discussion about HIV and AIDS, we do talk about some stuff that might be a little too adult for young listeners. So I wanted to offer that warning. Here's Michael Timsisco. Michael Timsisco, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Jason. It's uh, my pleasure. Well, it's it's my pleasure to host you. Like uh, last week's episode, we're on my back porch, and so we've got a little bit of wind, a little bit of bird noise, and hopefully not too much else in, in terms of competing audio. Um, but I, I want to start with you the same way that I start with every guest and just ask the question, why are you here in Amarillo? How did you end up in this um, in this city, uh, and I ask that knowing that you know a lot about like your family's history, and there, there's there's some interesting stuff there. So tell me a little bit about your family and and how you ended up here. Well, first of all, um, I'm first generation American. Uh, my father came over here uh, with his sister from Czechoslovakia. They settled in Pennsylvania. Uh, outside of Pittsburgh. Eventually, my father joined the Air Force, and uh, he and my mother were stationed here in Texas, and they loved Texas. They actually just fell in love with everything about Texas. Um, Eventually, they made their way up to Amarillo, so I was born and raised here. left just as soon as I possibly could, uh, like so many other people, and moved to Austin and uh, never thought I would actually leave Austin mm-hmm. and and was there for almost 20 years. Uh, Austin is where I met my husband, Jason Haugen. Uh, he was in the Air Force as well okay. at Bergstrom Air Force Base in Austin, Texas. And uh, how did I end up, or how did I end up back in Amarillo? I ended up back in Amarillo because my father was dying. I had aging parents and just felt like I needed to be closer. I'm the only boy in my family. uh, So it's just sort of uh, a tradition that the son goes back and looks after his mother but we didn't think we were going to stay here. Yeah. Our intention was really to be here for a couple of years. And then we had plans to uh, go west and move to Albuquerque. Uh, we loved Albuquerque. We loved New Mexico. Uh, Albuquerque reminded us of Austin in its early days when I think that there were only 252,000 people whenever I moved there. So anyway, that's how I ended up back in Amarillo. The reason we stayed in Amarillo was because we uh, started to become active members in the community. 
we uh, started to meet just some incredible people here. Uh, started to make some really wonderful friendships. Uh, we were uh, very involved in uh, starting an organization for gay youth called Outstanding Amarillo. Okay. And so once you, I think once you start to become invested in a community, I don't know, you, you, you enjoy it. You enjoy the people. You enjoy the progress you see happening. And um, so here we are still 20 years later All right. <laughs> in Amarillo. So- <laughs> there, there's there's a lot of follow up questions I want to ask. Um, I'll try to remember them. Let's let's rewind a little bit. I'm interested in, you know, your your parents making their way to Texas and discovering that they really like it here in Amarillo um, after coming here from Eastern Europe and and wondering like what it was about the people here or the climate or whatever that that provided that attraction to them. Do you, do you have any idea? I mean, it seems to me like it's very different from Czechoslovakia or, or someplace like oh, that. Oh, a- absolutely. Um, you know, my father was um, uh, very intrigued with Western culture, Okay, uh, something he'd never seen before. He loved the feeling of independence that uh, Texas had to offer. Of course, you know, my, my grandfather and uh, uh, his family, my, my dad and his sister, uh, they had escaped communism uh, mm. from Ukraine. So they, they were certainly about independence and freedom, and, and they just had that sense uh, here in Texas that that's what Texas was all about. I think they loved the uh, mild four seasons uh, that Texas has to offer, especially Amarillo. And um, I, I, I really don't know necessarily what else to say about what, that. What year did your grandfather come to the United States? Do you you know? know, I'm really not for sure. My father was, I think, aged 12 whenever he came over. And my father was uh, born in 1921. Okay, so it was in the 30s. Yeah, it was in the 30s. You know, my, my father also, of course, coming into the country, um, they experienced a lot of discrimination, uh, being uh, immigrants, being foreigners. Uh, the uh, areas that they eventually lived in, of course, were neighborhoods. There was the Italian neighborhood. There was the uh, Russian neighborhood. There was the Czechoslovakian neighborhood. Uh, in fact, I just have to add this. My father actually grew up with Henry Mancini. Really? Uh, absolutely. And I remember as a child, Henry Mancini coming to Amarillo. And uh, after the concert that we went to to go hear, uh, he came over to our house wow. and sat down at our family piano and played us some other songs. It was just, it was magical. Um, but I have to tell you just, and this is kind of funny, again, uh, these neighborhoods, they were uh, very protected, uh, that my dad, there were gangs. My dad actually was a gang member. Where was this? Like, where, where did Outside he of Pittsburgh, okay, in Aliquippa, home of uh, and birthplace of Madonna, by the way. Right, but you don't think of it as, like, <laughs> gang territory. No, no. They, at least I don't. Maybe I'm, I don't know. No, there were, there were other nationalities that would come into neighborhoods and cause problems. And so these gangs were formed sort of to protect your neighborhood. And Henry Mann Mancini was part of the same gang as my dad. Uh, they were the Main Street gang. And at the time, Henry Mancini apparently played the piccolo and hmm. not the piano. Uh, that was just some other information that I learned. Which is not the most street of instruments, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, so consequently, of course, my dad had a love of music. Huh. He had a love of art in any way, shape, or form. Uh, he became a painter uh, whenever he was a young man, and I'm I'm really fortunate to have some of his paintings wow, okay. even in my house. And um, I love the fact that I can look at them every day. What kind of things when when you were living in Austin for so long before you moved here? What did you do there? Oh gosh, I did everything in Austin. I uh, of course went to school in Austin. I had a theater company in Austin. I was artistic director for the first 
professional theater company in Austin where we paid all of our actors and technicians and technical crew. And after that, I uh, also kind of worked in politics for a short time uh, with Jane Hickey, uh, who uh, was um, Ann Richards' campaign manager for uh, both of her runs as uh, treasurer and, of course, her run for governor. Mm-hmm. We, uh, a group of friends and I, uh, also formed a separate multimedia production company in Austin uh, called THW Squared. Uh, we created our own uh, live theater, very similar to Esther's Follies, but with a very uh, much political edge to it. Uh, nothing was really off bounds or mm-hmm. out of bounds for us. Uh, we did that for gosh, I don't know, a number of years. Uh, Multimedia, we had video, we had original music, we had poetry. Uh, It was was an incredible experience. Uh, I I had a great time doing it. Uh, Let's see, what else? What else? Uh, We were involved with AIDS Services of Austin. I uh, happened to be friends with the first person that was diagnosed with AIDS in Austin. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was a really scary time. It was a really frightening time. So this was like at the height of the epidemic in the 80s? Absolutely. Um, I'm not for sure what year he, uh, Leo, actually died. Uh, Maybe in 83. All right. Okay, 1983. And... you know, it uh, the AIDS epidemic or pandemic at the time really shaped me and shaped my my partner, my husband Jason. We had, uh, of course, being involved in the theatrical community as well as the uh, film community and uh, sound production community because we had contacts and friends with that worked in all of those industries. Uh, we, of course, had several people that we knew that uh, were sick and eventually died uh, uh, during those those 80s and early 90s. Um, everyone was dying. Yeah, uh, it was a really tough time. And um, we, we did what we could. We became uh, buddies uh, for certain friends that were sick. We would go grocery shopping for them. We would prepare meals for them. We would go and clean their houses for them. Uh, And then, of course, as more and more people became ill, uh, we started to become caregivers uh, because they were in short supply Mm. at at the time. And uh, we uh, also, we started thinking about leaving Austin at one point um, after I was um, kidnapped and robbed in front of my bank in Austin well, kidnapped and then robbed. And uh, I know I went home and I thought, man, you know, Austin, it's just getting so big. And then I learned that the people that kidnapped me were Jamaican gang members working out of Houston. This is not a story I expected to come uh, up in this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so, you know, I really at that point thought, I don't don't know if I really want to stay here anymore. Were you targeted? Like, did they kidnap you on purpose or were I, you well, wrong I place? think it was random but I was apparently an easy target wow. with an unlocked car door and windows down and uh, I was being nice and giving directions to someone and the next thing I knew they were in my car uh, and I had a gun in my side and uh, um, I drove where he told me to drive and then we picked up another kidnapper at another location. It was, I, you know, I was just in shock. Uh, I really didn't know what was going on. And, uh, but hey, I made it through all right. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I was down a couple hundred bucks. I, you know, I still had my car. I still had my life. Uh, I didn't have my wallet, but um, uh, yeah, it was quite an experience. <laughs> Obviously, the crime element, I mean, that's <laughs> definitely scary. You're, you know, you're dealing with so much grief and loss in the community there. I'm curious about the decision once you know once it became time to uh, to come to Amarillo, um, and and you making the the decision after a couple of years, you and Jason, to stay here. I mean, obviously Amarillo is a very 
different cultural environment than Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, you're involved in the art scene. We have a very strong art scene, but it's we're not Austin. Uh, you're involved in democratic politics. Obviously, Amarillo is not a hotbed of of anything liberal. Uh, also, you're heavily involved in the the gay community in Austin, and then come here to Amarillo. I, I just wonder what you found here, and what kinds of challenges maybe that presented for you that you had to overcome, you know, in making that decision to stay. Well, you know, first of all, uh, because I did leave Amarillo so early, and and really was a, a young adult, uh, and uh, personally just coming out. Okay. Um, it was really wonderful for me to have an opportunity to live in a very diverse city mm-hmm. like Austin, uh, a very accepting city, especially for uh, gay people. So I, I, I think that I, I kind of became a well-rounded gay person in Austin. Um, I, I never felt uh, discriminated against. I never felt that anyone... Uh, held any animosity towards me because I was gay. One thing I just want to kind of go back to is when we decided to leave Austin, we we decided to leave Austin when the last person that we were really close to died. Hmm. And we didn't really know of anyone else that we had to care for. Um, and so that that's when our thinking began on on leaving. When I came back to Amarillo, of course, I, I um, you know, started to see some things that concerned me. Uh, I was, uh, I would see teenagers in parking lots uh, near gay bars, and uh, that made me very sad. Uh, so, you know, several of us, there were a group of us that uh, came together. Uh, decided we needed to do something for the youth of Amarillo, the gay youth of Amarillo. And so, like I said, we we started an organization called Outstanding Amarillo. Um, and we created something really beautiful. And we created it with other people and volunteers. And uh, we started uh, grant writing and obtaining funding from the Gill Foundation in Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, eventually, we were able to hire a, an executive director who also, since we were all volunteers, helped guide us uh, in in growing that organization. Um, and and I ju- we just started seeing so many beautiful things start to happen. Uh, we we uh, uh, created a meeting space, uh, a safe place for young people to go to, for their parents to come to. Uh, for advice, for guidance, for referrals to other places, uh, providers, psychologists, all any, anything that we could uh, refer someone to or, or, or somewhere that could help them uh, become more understanding and more accepting, we, we certainly did that. Uh, from the house that we created, eventually there was a community center downtown uh, that was open for a number of years that had support groups and education opportunities. It was a library, a fellowship. It was it was a really wonderful thing. Um, unfortunately, um, Outstanding Amarillo, like so many organizations, is gone. Um, it's, again, very difficult to run an all-volunteer mm-hmm. nonprofit. Um, and, um, of course, social media, uh, took off and people were connecting with other people through social media. And so maybe outstanding wasn't necessarily needed anymore, but it still, uh, sort of hurts my heart that we don't have that sort of, um, support available to our gay community anymore. Okay. Tell me, tell me why that's important. As you know, you mentioned coming out when you were young, um, and 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 seeing you know the youth engaging in you know unsafe behaviors. I guess why is it so important for young people to find that community of support in a situation like that, where they're they're coming to terms with their sexual identity, they're trying to figure things out. Well, there are so many problems uh, around gay youth. 
even today we have, uh, there are families, there are parents that once they find out that their son or daughter may be gay or lesbian or transgender, often reject those, um, those children. They're often thrown out onto the street. Um, gay youth have a, a high rate of substance abuse issues, a high rate of suicide. And why wouldn't they, especially if they've just been thrown out of the yeah, house? rejected by their family. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they're on the streets and they have to survive. And, uh, you know, uh, one of our intents with Amarillo, or Outstanding Amarillo originally, was to look to create a shelter uh, for runaway youth. Uh, but that that comes with so many complications, and it's such a huge effort that we, we felt we needed to, we could refer gay youth to certain shelters that we knew were uh, we were comfortable with that we felt were safe environments uh, for those particular youth you know there's a lot of substance abuse within the general gay community there there always has been it's a it's a self-esteem issue it's a a, a way of of course uh, as far as alcohol goes drowning your sorrows mm-hmm. uh, of course gay bars were the only outlet and the only place for so many people to gather and have fellowship um, and feel safe like. and and feel safe um, of course that was until the Pulse massacre in in Florida, of course, that sort of uh, kind of killed that thought of it uh, necessarily being a safe place anymore. Um, so that's why I feel like it's really important that that there are those support organizations uh, for a gay community in any and every city. Um, and and like I said, I we're we're just lacking that right now. We do have a great organization here called Panhandle Pride, who um, outstanding for many years coordinated the Gay Pride Festival here. Uh, Panhandle Pride took it over after Outstanding went away, and they have done an outstanding job at growing that event. Uh, we went from uh, maybe our best year of maybe having a thousand people in attendance, where I think last year they had well over three thousand mm-hmm. people in attendance. Which, oh my God, talk about progress! Uh, you know, and talk about a community maturing. Um, three thousand people coming out saying I'm gay. I'm proud, you know, uh, I love my people. I want to gather with them. Uh, and the other great thing about uh, pride now in Amarillo is you don't just see gay people. You know, right. you see all of our straight allies and and parents and grandparents and grandchildren. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's really wonderful and uh, has been a wonderful experience. And I've just loved... Uh, seeing it grow, and you've—I mean, you've seen that growth from the really early days. I, I wonder, you know, that obviously this is a weird year, and you know, June has not looked like it typically looks, and so you know, the festival um, hasn't happened. But we—I I wonder if you can speak to like how that change has occurred, you know, during your experience in this city. Uh, from being here early to uh, you know coming here twenty years ago and to where we are today, what what kind of hope does that give you? What kind of maybe satisfaction does that give you? It gives me tremendous hope. It gives me tremendous satisfaction. We have just seen so much change in the past twenty years. Uh, I know whenever I I came back to Amarillo, I came across other people here, professionals that. No one at their workplace really knew that they were gay. You know, it wasn't anything that they brought up. Uh, They didn't uh, take their partners to company functions. They maybe took someone of the opposite sex to that function. I, I, of course, becoming a gay adult in Austin, just didn't understand that. And, and felt really sorry for, for those individuals. But I also tried to impress on those individuals that, you know, unless they were open and honest with, with everyone around them, that we would never see any change mm-hmm. and that people would always be in the closet and always not being truthful 
uh, about who they were. Um, and that, that really saddened me. You know, whenever I came back here, I, I, not that I made it clear, I didn't wear, you know, hey, I'm a gay man t-shirt uh, at any given time. But everyone that I met and everyone that I came in contact with, it was just part of the introduction, you know, uh, introducing Jason as to who he was. A real short story. Uh, we used the term partner for for many many years, right. and I still do. It's it's kind of odd for me to say my husband, but I I try to to of course normalize it for people. Uh, we were in Austin. Uh, we had gone back, and of course some friends threw a big barbecue for us and invited lots of people over. And there were some new people that we didn't know, and we were being introduced uh, to and. I was introducing Jason to uh, a couple, a straight couple, and I said, yeah, this is my partner, Jason Haugen. And uh, the gentleman's question was, oh, well, what business do you have? Right. right. Uh, <laughs> That's the only context they had for two <laughs> yeah. men being partners. And hey, that was in Austin, yeah. you know, many, many years ago. Um, so again, you know, once I got back here and I, I still saw people, you know, afraid and, and afraid for their jobs and, and, uh, their, their, not necessarily their lives, but their, their relationships and everything about their lives. It, it, again, it just, it made me sad. And I just, I felt like I needed to do something, uh, to help change that, we stayed here. We didn't go to Albuquerque. We tried to make a difference. Uh, we wanted to make a difference. We wanted to be there for um, especially those young people that uh, needed someone. So tell me about PASO. I, I know that the organization has existed for quite a long time. And 33, 33 years. years. So was- you've... You've been involved with it for how long? Since April 2002. Okay. Well, I've been employed by PASO since uh, 2002. I, I became involved with PASO pretty much as soon as we, we moved up here to Amarillo. Right. And there, was, there were organizations just like that in Austin, I Absolutely, presume. Aid Services of Austin. But of course, you know, Austin is much larger. Uh, Austin has its own AIDS clinic. It has its own AIDS dental clinic. It had its own AIDS hospice uh, facilities available. Um, Amarillo really didn't have that. And AIDS uh, services uh, provided by an AIDS service organization, um, all of them across the state pretty much provide the same services. They maybe just don't provide them in the same way. Um, I I was um, asked to join PASO uh, back in 2002 when um, it was really almost ready to close. Hmm. Uh, there had been mismanagement. Uh, there had been some embezzlement. They were uh, operating in the red by about I, I don't sixty five thousand dollars. So the board and I and other people worked to rectify that problem. Um, it was it it took us a couple of years. Uh, but I was really uh, thrilled when I was able to announce at our first Friends of Paso fundraiser that we were now operating in the black. Um, I wasn't having to call the bank every two weeks to get them to honor our paychecks. Right. Um, and uh, since that time, we have continued to um, grow and expand our services uh, whenever I first started at Paso, I think we were providing um, medical and social services to around 125 people. Uh, right now, Paso serves over 300 individuals. Wow. Um, we have a very comprehensive uh, comprehensive set of services that we are able to provide. We are we continue to operate in the black. We are a much stronger agency today. Uh, we have some incredible supporters. Um, in fact, one of our supporters um, donated our building to us that we currently call our home. So even, even with AIDS, you know, I, I, I talk about Amarillo and I talk about how it has, has perhaps changed, 
how it has become better in so many regards uh, for so many different population groups, gay people, uh, people with HIV, people who are living with AIDS. Buildings weren't being donated 20 years ago, you know, Uh, that type of support just wasn't there. The the support for Paso was mainly from the gay community. Uh, Of course, the gay community was adversely affected by HIV and AIDS. Um, Although it is a sexually transmitted disease and it affects every human being in the world, Uh, Over the past few years, I have seen our support move and grow from strictly being uh, the gay community to the general community of Amarillo. Um, And I think that that, too, is something that we can all be proud about and and happy about, that um, the general community came to understand that it is not just a gay disease, that it's a human disease, and that everybody is affected. And I know that through, despite that, your fundraisers, which have been so successful, uh, I'm thinking of, of like Turnabout, that has become such a culturally um, beloved, you know, institution among the gay community. I, I wonder if, you know, your the idea to begin doing something like that, um, did that come from things that you had, had seen in Austin or did, how did that, what's the origin story? You know, I was really, I was really fortunate. I inherited a turnabout okay. uh, from Sean Walsh. Okay. All right. And Sean Walsh was the president of the board of uh, Paso at the time. Uh, turnabout actually started in the gay bars and it was Paso staff that would were the performers. All right. Sean Walsh uh, saw a lot in Turnabout, and he and the board at the time decided, oh, well, we need to get it out of the bars. We need. And to Sean is a performer. I mean, he's absolutely he's, he's super involved incur- with ALT oh and had the you know had the. I guess the faculties to say, okay, this is what this thing can be, right? Yes. I asked Sean every year to come back and do the show. I have yet to get him back uh, for a number of years. Uh, his uh, husband, Jeff Jarnigan, also, I would love to have him back in. Anyway, Sean, we, we took it over from Sean, and, and I was also very lucky that uh, I was able to get Raymond Gerard on board and... We just decided we needed to do our best to grow the show. Um, I think the first year that I was involved with Turnabout, of course, I begged people for donations, and uh, so we just didn't have to spend much money. And I think we cleared um, and actually uh, netted around $14,000, which was the most it had raised. And so we just kept on setting our goals higher and higher. We started... Uh, creating these huge sets uh, for the show instead of just having curtains uh, for Mm -hmm. people to look at. We had set pieces that would move. It was great. We grew the show. Uh, We now have, uh, we now bring in right at about $40,000 annually with Turnabout. And um, we also know that our audience has changed because I'll be honest with you, there's uh, many more straight people in the (laughs) audience than there are gay people in the audience. It's a really fun uh, event. It's a great fundraiser. And I'm as sad as can be that we uh, made the decision on Tuesday this week that turnabout is canceled for the year. Uh, we just we don't we just don't feel like we can pull it off safely and and we have no idea what things are going to look like come November this year. So, so that that leads me to kind of the the last question I wanted to ask. I know that you know you've had so much experience dealing with living with a deadly virus, you know, in Austin, and you talked about so many of your friends that you lost to. AIDS and the community having to just deal with HIV, which is a disease that still does not have, you know, a vaccine. There are treatments for it. Um, the the gay community, especially someone coming of age in the 80s like that, has learned to live with a deadly virus. And we're in a position now where we're all having to live with a deadly virus. We don't know if there will be a vaccine. We hope for that. Has there anything in your experience 
Um, maybe that gives you some insight into, you know, now, now the whole world is going through something that, uh, that gay people went through, you know, in, in the eighties and, and trying to figure out how, how do we handle this? How do we let this impact our lives in some ways, but like not let it control our lives in other ways? You know, we, I, I see, and I, I started to say we, because I, I hold this discussion with a, a lot of different people regularly. We, uh, with HIV, um, saw a highly politicized disease. Okay? Um, of course, it affected the gay community first. It affected drug users first. It affected sex workers first. So it was, it was thought that, well, it's not ever going to affect me. I'm, I'm a general community member. I'm a straight person. I'm, I'm not ever going to catch HIV. Um, and so, you know, the gay community really had to pull together to decide how are we going to protect ourselves? And so that, of course, required a lot of behavior modification on everyone's part. Um, you, the, the way you had sex had to change. Um, condoms had to become a norm if you were going to, uh, protect yourself and keep yourself negative, or if you were positive, not pass the virus on to someone else. And unfortunately, we're seeing the same thing with coronavirus. I think it's becoming highly politicized. Um, there are simple measures that that we all need to take to protect ourselves, to protect our neighbors, our family, and they're simple. They're simple things. Wearing a mask, washing your hands. Uh, what is so difficult about that? It's, it's not going to be forever. Uh, you know, condom use now, uh, of course, has gone down. Uh, we have PrEP, we have pre-exposure prophylaxis that mm. can protect people from becoming infected with HIV. And, uh, you know, so if you have two adults that are committed to one another and they decide that they want to forego condoms, uh, that's fine. Uh, same with masks. If within a family you, are, you feel like you are in a safe environment, well, you don't have to wear a mask at home. But... I mean, when you're going out and you're mingling with people and you're interacting with people, it's a simple thing. Just put on a mask, socially distance, you know, until we can get a hold on this virus. Most importantly, uh, develop a vaccine. Uh, uh, another thing, feel comfortable and confident about the uh, therapeutics that are out there right now and are are coming available every day. The refinement of those therapeutics and treating uh, people that do have COVID nineteen. We saw it with HIV meds; they were refined. They started working in combination. We saw the death rate go down fifty percent in one year in nineteen ninety six. People still die of AIDS. Um, there are a lot of different reasons why they they do still die of AIDS, but people don't have to anymore. Uh, we have incredible medications, um, and as long as you're compliant with those, you you can live a good, healthy life for the rest of your life. If we take the steps necessary that are required to uh, protect us from coronavirus, uh, and we uh, continue the work towards vaccines and good therapeutics, you know, soon we will be able to say goodbye to those masks. Uh, things change and things do get better, but it takes an effort on everyone's part to get there. Today's episode is also sponsored by SKP Creative. SKP is a full service marketing agency, and I asked them what they wanted to communicate this time around. They've been encouraging people to shop at local businesses, but right now, they just want to encourage you to wear a mask. Just like Michael and I were talking about, cases are spiking again in Texas, and all of us want business to be able to stay open. We want the economy to get going again. The best way to ensure that is to keep COVID-19 cases down. And the best way to do that 
according to experts from the CDC to Amarillo Public Health, is to wear a mask anytime you're out in public and can't maintain distance. Masks are recommended for slowing the spread of the virus, and limiting the virus spread is a precondition to fully opening Amarillo's economy. So, mask up. Thanks again to SKP Creative at skpcreative.com. Okay, I'm back with Michael Tim Cisco. Michael, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. As my guest, your job is to answer these eight straight questions in as much detail as you want to. Uh, I may ask a follow-up question, depending on what you say. Uh, the first one is one that I've uh, that I introduced in my most recent episode, and bringing it back today. What's one thing the last few months, whether it's uh, due to the pandemic or due to the racial protests? I mean, what's one thing? that this period has revealed to you about Amarillo? You know, I've, I, of course, have been watching things very closely and experiencing things personally. I was, I was pleased. I, I have to say I, I have been pleased with the initial uh, response of Amarillo citizens, Amarillo city government, and I'm I'm very very proud of our uh, city health department, our public health authority Scott Milton, uh, Dr. Brian Weiss, mm-hmm. uh, who by the way are both contracted physicians of Paso. Uh, they provide uh, care services to our HIV positive clients. I saw a lot of of people being very careful initially, uh, taking the virus very seriously. Um, I'm, I have been dismayed uh, ever since May uh, at the um, lack of mask wearing, uh, the lack of social distancing. Uh, uh, we all have a desire to get back to normal, but it's it's just not going to be normal anytime soon. I, I hope that our city government will continue to monitor things closely here in Amarillo and that if uh, we do see, of course, another surge, uh, that they will take the appropriate steps to uh, safeguard our population. I hope that they're brave enough to take those necessary steps. Um, so many times it's hard to muster the courage to ask people to maybe do something that they don't want to do, but um, it's necessary in the name of public health uh, for us to do certain things. So um, I, I am a little bit discouraged at this point in time at, uh, at our current reaction to, to the pandemic. Um, I, I hope that people will start becoming more compliant with the measures uh, that need to be taken to protect themselves. All right. How do you, and, and this is a real awkward transition, but I'm going to make it anyway. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Well, you might be surprised, but I often refer to Amarillo as the Austin of the Texas panhandle. Okay. Well, which that, that's pretty accurate. Okay. If there is any sort of uh, cultural and liberal bastion of Texas panhandle, it would be Amarillo. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also might add in the South Plains as well and West Texas okay. as well. So even including larger cities like yes. Lubbock? Or- yeah, I mean, I, I, I really, I am, am kind of fascinated uh, with Amarillo uh, in the fact that um, there is, there, there appears to me a, a pretty good exchange of ideas, no matter what your political persuasion might be, uh, that there seems to be a willingness to cooperate, as, uh, especially with local politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, with differing uh, differing opinions uh, and insights, so uh, and we have just so many wonderful things here. Uh, we have art, uh, we have nature, we have incredible musicians, we have live music, we have great restaurants. I I I like Amarillo. Right. I think it's the Austin of the Texas Panhandle. Okay, I've never heard that <laughs> description, but I will um, I will certainly accept that one. What's the most underrated aspect of living in this area? I hate it whenever I hear people say there is nothing to do here. That's the underrated aspect of Amarillo. There is plenty to do here. Um, I, I think that 
people, maybe younger people say that because they go to larger cities and see everything that's happening there. Um, well, we, we really do have those same things happening here, but just on a smaller scale. So I think we have a lot to offer. I, I don't think, I think that having stuff to do is underrated. Okay. Okay. What does this area have too much of? Trash. We have too much trash floating around. I hate these trash dumpsters. People don't close the lids. Wind comes through, blows trash out. We had to pause this podcast to let a a trash truck (laughs) drive through my alley, I should note. Um, And I'm really, I'm unhappy with the citizens that I actually will see people chunk trash out of their cars. I, I, I just don't get it. So we have way too much trash and we really need to do something about it and get rid of those dumpsters. You lived in Austin for a long time. Did you see something similar in Austin? Is is that a Texas thing? Is that unique to Amarillo? Can you? No, we didn't see it in Austin. Okay, okay. we had uh, regular trash pickup. You had your own trash barrel. Uh, you maintained it. You took it out to the street. Um, we had we. I think we always had recycling. You know, yeah. it was just it was just mandatory. So no, we didn't have the problem with trash in in Austin. All I right. don't think. What does this area not have enough of? Recycling. Okay. Okay. And preservation. Okay. That's always been one of my main issues with Amarillo uh, ever since I was even a child. I couldn't believe it whenever I saw the Capitol Hotel being imploded to guess what? Make way for A parking Parking lot. Okay. Uh, I hate it whenever I see our our beautiful old buildings uh, still being destroyed. I know that it may take a lot of money to uh, preserve them. Uh, But once again, you're kind of preserving your your history. Um, I can't believe that we're not doing anything yet with the Herring Hotel. Uh, it, It floors me. It floors me. Let's build something new. Okay. Forget about the old. Yeah. I can I can agree with that for sure. When was the last time you went to Paladuro Canyon? Last year. Okay. Okay, before the pandemic. Right. I believe it was the day after Thanksgiving. Okay. All right. Um, A good actually, time to... I mean, fall is yeah. is really nice in the canyon. Uh, we love Paladuro Canyon. I've, I've always loved Paladuro Canyon. I used to go horseback riding uh, in Paladuro Canyon, and, and still do. I have friends from Austin. We'll, we'll go horseback riding in Cal- Paladuro Canyon. Uh, Jason and I are uh, Texas State Park members, uh, so we uh, actually have a membership that allows us right. discounted rates at uh, state parks. And uh, so, no, we love Paladuro Canyon. What's your favorite local restaurant? I have a lot. I have a lot, but I have to say, hands down, OHMS. All right. Why? <laughs> tell me Tell me why. So I, I know a lot of people uh, will name that. Uh, is there something specific about it that, you know, it's, it's been part of the downtown scene for a long time, way before downtown started to be redeveloped. Right, right. Well, when Jason and I uh, moved up here to Amarillo, I, I just found it was the the one restaurant that offered the most. Okay. Of course, I think they were only open on maybe Friday and Saturday yeah, it was nights. Limited. And then just for lunch, um, I loved the selection of food. Uh, I thought Mary Fuller was an incredible chef. And then, of course, they started to grow and opened up their restaurant on more nights, had a more diverse menu, uh, something you might find in Austin or Denver. Um, in fact, anytime we had any anybody coming into town and we were taking them out to dinner, it was definitely the place we would take them to eat. Okay. So, And what's your favorite local coffee shop? The 806 All on right. 6th Street. <laughs> uh, last time I was there was in February uh, with the minister of my church as we were preparing for a Sunday service. Okay. Uh, so I, I haven't been back since then, but look forward to my next cup of coffee A lot there. of people are really glad that it has, you oh. know, it, it has been <laughs> slow to reopen, uh, the 806 has, but I, I think it's such a fixture on 6th Street. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. Okay, Michael, that concludes the eight straight section. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what is one thing that you think listeners ought to know about or to experience here in the area? Well, I, you know, I had a lot of things to endorse because, you know, I said today I, I really love Amarillo. I think it has a lot to offer. 
I endorse my neighborhood. Okay. Okay. Tell me about your neighborhood. I live in the old country club neighborhood uh, on Sunset Terrace uh, behind Sam Houston Park. All right. Um, I love the diversity of our neighborhood. Uh, We have every uh, ethnicity. We have different cultures in our neighborhood. We have fabulous Sam Houston Park. Uh, we have the rails to trails mm-hmm. uh, right next to us, which of course we utilize as well. Um, so uh, my neighborhood, the diversity of my neighborhood. Um, if if you're looking for a house, uh, we have houses that run from a hundred thousand dollars up to six hundred thousand yeah. uh, dollars. So you, know, you might find what you're looking for. Uh, we have great neighbors. We know all of our neighbors. There are walkers. There are runners. We have artists. They're putting artwork into their yards, uh, sculptures into their yards. It's a it's a, a a great neighborhood to to live in. Architecturally, it's one of the most diverse in Amarillo. I know because Guy Carlander, who is one of like the famous architects of Amarillo history, was one of the developers of that area. And several of those houses he actually designed. I don't think we have two houses that are the same. Every house, I believe, is different. Okay, my my main thing that I, I love so much right now, and I'm so glad we have, and I'm so glad it's growing, our community market. Yes. Best thing to happen to Amarillo in a number of years. I love it. And it has recently reopened for the yes, summer. Yes, yes. Thankfully. Yes, so, so go with a mask. With a mask. <laughs> Michael Tensisco, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much, Jason. It was a real pleasure to visit with you this morning. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Michael for joining me on my porch for the interview. Thanks also to Wick Realty and SKP Creative for sponsoring this episode. If your business is interested in sponsoring the show, or if you as an individual want to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash heyamarello. Thanks, as usual, to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Supporters of Hey Amarello include executive producers Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Neil Nossiman, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, Joshua Rafe, Chriselda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, and Valerie Gooch. This has been episode 151. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.